When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books Net- in Women's History, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm Rebecca Turkington, and I am so pleased to be joined today by Dr. Megan Throckold to discover- discuss her new book, Citizens of the World, U.S. Women and Global Government. Um, Megan, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. So Dr. Throckold is a professor of history at Denison College, and her research focuses on women, foreign relations, and law in the 20th century United States. Her first book, Pan-American Women, U.S. Internationalists, and Revolutionary Mexico, is also featured on New Books Network, so you can listen to that episode from 2015. And since then, she has published a number of articles on peace activism and education, and uh, you're currently working on a study of legal battles over the Vietnam War draft in the 60s and 70s, right? That's right. It's a little bit of a departure from the first two projects, but I'm really enjoying it. So, but today we're here to talk about your latest book, and that is Citizens of the World, which is new this year from University of Pennsylvania Press. Um, it profiles nine American women who advocated for a world government in the first half of the 20th century. So it's in part a group biography, but also tells this broader story about the evolution of women's internationalism, especially in the face of two world wars. I want to say up front just how much I enjoyed this book. I think it's a really helpful contribution for understanding how American women participated in these conversations about world organization. And it's also just a very accessible read. I think even for people who aren't steeped in this part of history, you just have such a a colorful cast of characters here. Definitely. Um, Yeah. So before we jump into that, I'd like to just start by asking you about your own background. What is it that first led you to this particular topic and how is this connected to some of your previous work? So uh, since I've been in graduate school, since I was working on my dissertation, I have been a historian of U.S. women's international activism. Really, it comes down to the question of how did women in the United States see the world? What kinds of international consciousness did they have? How did they see themselves in the world? What was the relationship for them between the kinds of activism they were engaging in at home for suffrage or temperance or abolition or equal rights or anything and the rest of the world in any kind of way? So that's where my first book really came from. I was interested in how U.S. women tried to reach out to women in Mexico and incorporate them into networks for peace activism and education and all kinds of things. And I was particularly interested in the problems they encountered, given that the United States and Mexico in the 1920s and 30s had a pretty difficult relationship. So it was about how they tried to negotiate those that larger political turmoil, diplomatic turmoil, as they were trying to establish these connections. The short answer is not very well. <laughs> but 
then for this book, what really drew me to this is that while I was researching for my first book and while I was doing work on women's internationalism, I kept coming across this phrase. I am a citizen of the world. We are citizens of the world. As world citizens, we think, and it just stuck in my brain. I really wanted to know what they meant when they called themselves citizens of the world. Was this just a nice rhetorical flourish? Was there some sort of deeper meaning? So that's really where this book came from. I wanted to know what they meant when they said citizens of the world. Well, that's a great segue into my next question, which is about this definition that you put forward. Um, There's obviously considerable variety in the politics, the backgrounds, the visions of these different women that you profile. And as you said, they all call themselves world citizens. So what is your definition of global citizen and how did you come to that? (laughs) Okay, so my definition of world citizenship is three parts. First, when they called themselves world citizens, they were demanding to participate in shaping the global polity, particularly through the creation of some kind of intergovernmental organization or world federation. Second, they believed that their world citizenship obligated them to work for peace. So we know that citizenship is not only about rights, it's also about obligations. And the responsibility, the duty to work for peace was very much part of their conception of world citizenship. And then third, these women embraced, in theory, if not always in practice, the radicalizing potential of world citizenship. Citizenship is an equalizing term. In theory, on paper, there's no difference between a male citizen and a female citizen, between a white citizen and a black citizen. We know, of course, in practice, that's not true, but they all embraced that radical equalizing potential. In terms of how I got to this definition, it was a long road. First of all, none of these women ever defined what they meant by world citizenship. Despite the fact that they used the phrase, they used the rhetoric of citizenship a lot, none of them ever said, here's what I mean when I say this. So what that meant is that I had to do a lot of thinking. I had to do a lot of reading outside of history, actually, to to figure out a language that I could use to describe what I was seeing in the past. And this was really the first time that I'd ever done anything like this you know, I think historians sometimes have a tricky relationship to theory in the sense that we don't want to go into our questions and sources from a particular theoretical perspective because we want to honor what's in the sources. But I think for me, at least in this instance, theory was incredibly useful to be able to articulate what I was seeing in the past given that they weren't providing me with a language for it. So I did a lot of reading in political theory, in citizenship studies, um, particularly feminist political theory. And I talk a little bit in the introduction about what it was that I got from all of this reading. So using the work of other scholars who have detached, for example, the idea of citizenship from the nation state was really helpful. The idea that citizenship can exist apart from a national government. The idea that citizenship is gendered, 
of course, was very important. And so a lot of U.S. women's historians who have written about the gendered nature nature of citizenship were very useful to me. So I drew on a lot of other scholars' work to articulate this definition of global citizenship. That um, interdisciplinary perspective is really interesting, and I think it, it comes across really well in your introduction. That was one of my favorite parts. So um, another thing that's really speaking to a lot of a lot of different audiences, I think. Um, so obviously, that these are issues that are sort of unbound from a particular historical moment. You've chosen to bind them in the sort of first half of the 20th century, 1900 to 1950. So what makes that a particularly fruitful period to think about this question? Sure. I think there are a lot of things. Number one, obviously, the early 20th century was a time when a lot of women in particular were thinking about citizenship. They were thinking about suffrage. They were thinking about the relationship between voting rights and citizenship. So a lot of them were already using the rhetoric of citizenship in ways that I could pick up on in the historical record. The second thing, of course, and you mentioned this at the beginning, this is a period when there are two world wars. And there's a growing acceptance around the world of the idea that there needs to be some sort of broader international cooperation to forestall these major global conflicts. So what you really get starting in the 1890s is the development of what seem like they could be potentially intergovernmental, lasting intergovernmental organizations. So in 1899, for instance, you get the conference at The Hague on international arbitration. And that's really the first time that the governments of the world come together with the idea of creating permanent mechanisms to forestall war. Then, of course, after during and after World War I, you get the idea of the League of Nations, which is actually quite popular in the United States, even though the United States never ends up joining it. And then by 1945, in the end of World War II, it's clear to the majority of Americans that some kind of body like the United Nations needs to exist and that the United States needs to be a part of it. So I think all these things are just are really interesting developments over the course of the first part of the 20th century. And there's so much change in these attitudes between 1900 and 1950, that it was a really interesting period to look at. And in that period, are these women that you're looking at representative of a larger populace? Are they outliers? How widely idea, how widely accepted were their ideas at the time? That's a really good question. And the answer is that it varies by the women. Some of these women were would have been considered and were considered very mainstream. So women like Lucia Ames Mead and Fanny Fern Andrews were progressives in the way that we would recognize a lot of progressives. They believed in the power of the federal government. They believed that that government needed to be reformed and expanded. And of course, a key part of that was women's suffrage. They believed that the United States needed to play a more active role in the world as a leader in terms of setting an example for the rest of the world in terms of bringing democracy to parts of the world. So in that respect, they really were not outliers. The thing that made them different, of course, and this is still early in the 20th century, is the zeal with which they promoted an international organization, and in particular, a governmental organization, a a body that was not just 
a place like the League of Nations for nations to come together and talk and maybe do some work. They really wanted a body that had legislative and executive and administrative authority. So that was what set them apart a little bit. Then as you move later into the first half of the 20th century into the 1930s, and you get to women like Lola Maverick Lloyd and Rosica Schwimmer, they were definitely outliers. <laughs> they were radical pacifists. They were radical feminists. They wanted a full-on world government in a way that very few people in the United States or around the world supported at that time. And then by the time you get into the 1940s and you get women like Esther Brunauer and Dorothy Kenyon, you sort of get back more to the mainstream. Women who were involved in the women's movements, such as they were at the time, women who were not very radical politically. I mean, Kenyon was certainly radical in some respects. She was absolutely a feminist and she was a labor activist. But in terms of her internationalist consciousness, she was not nearly as radical as somebody like Lloyd or Schwimmer or Edith Winner, who was their protege in the 1940s. Well, I'm going to switch a little bit and talk to you about the format of this book, um, which I found really interesting. Because as you're saying now, this it really tells a story of changes in public opinion over this really tumultuous period, the rise and fall of different international institutions, of different NGOs. Why did you decide to take a biographical approach to look at this? Um, and what are some of the opportunities and the challenges of writing group biography like this? So first, I would say that I came to the biographical approach pretty late in the process. I had already had a contract for the book. So I had written a couple of chapters. I had a full proposal that was not a biographical approach. It was roughly chronological, but it didn't look like this. And then I started to realize a couple of things. Number one, ideas like world citizenship and world government are pretty esoteric. And it was going to be much easier for me to talk about these ideas in an accessible way if I anchored them to the lives and experiences of actual women. So rather than talk about them in a kind of a nebulous, high-level format, which I am prone to do, <laughs> I thought it would be a better approach to look at these issues from the concrete perspectives of particular women. So that was one reason I made that choice. And then the other reason is that I'm a women's historian, and I really think that we as historians have not yet done enough work to bring to light the lives and ideas of a lot of notable women in U.S. history. So I honestly, I wanted to do my part to introduce readers to women who they might not otherwise know, like Fanny Fernandrews and Florence Squirt and Tuttle and Esther Brunauer, women who, you know, for, for lots of different reasons, just haven't been written about yet. And I really think that these women have important ideas that we as historians should consider. How did you end up choosing the nine women that you picked? That was a long process too. Once I decided to do the biographical approach, some choices became very obvious. Lucia Ames Mead was a very obvious way to open the book. I had already written an article on Fanny Fern Andrews, and so I I knew that I could read that piece. It really it it underwent a lot of reshaping, but I knew that I could reshape it into a chapter on her. I knew I wanted to do a chapter on Lloyd and Schwimmer. And then others, I, I really did some picking and choosing. I wanted to make sure that I had a range of perspectives 
particularly a range between absolute pacifists who were demanding a large-scale world government and more moderate, I would say, not even pacifists, but peace activists, maybe? People who favored peace but weren't necessarily (laughs) anti-war, who did not necessarily want a large-scale world government, who wanted maybe... a a more scaled back version of an international organization. They wanted a group like the League of Nations or the United Nations to have more power than they ultimately did, but not so much power that nations were having to relinquish a lot of sovereignty. So I I wanted that range of views on world government, really. Um, One other clear differentiating factor, I think, is the differing visions of race and empire between the different women that you picked. Um, Could you just talk a little bit more about that and how white supremacy and American exceptionalism in particular informed the thinking of a lot of these women? Yeah, and it did inform all of their thinking to one degree or another. All of the white women in this book were definitely operating, usually implicitly, but sometimes explicitly, from assumptions about white superiority, about particularly about American superiority. But they definitely all had, again, the white women had to one degree or another the mindset that part of their duty as world citizens was to help non-white women around the world realize their own world citizenship and become involved in the global polity. So it was that sort of benevolent maternalism of we will help you become integrated into the world. And again, that, that ranged that, that uh, (laughs) the severity or the extent of that mindset differed among all these women. So Fanny Fernandrews, for example, was very clear about civilization and the fact that white Americans represented the pinnacle of civilization. This is a very progressive era idea and that they can bring the benefits of American ideas and democracy to the rest of the world. Then you have, by contrast, women like Lloyd and Schwimmer, who understood that white imperialism had, they understood the realities of it. They understood that even in the 1930s, that colonialism was still keeping a lot of the world's population from really even the opportunity to to participate in the global polity, and they wanted to increase those opportunities. But the ways that they envisioned that were actually sort of reminiscent of something like the League of Nations mandate system, where their idea was that newly decolonized populations would come under the control of the world government as a period of sort of tutelage as they matured and eventually took their place among the nations of the world. So it wasn't as explicitly racist for women like that, but there's definitely still the racialized assumption about the need for education on the part of non-white populations before they can really participate in the world government. And then you have Mary McLeod Bethune, of course, who's definition whose conception of world citizenship is completely informed by her own experience as a black woman, by her own experiences for of racial discrimination in the United States, by her struggles for racial equality. 
And so for her, the role of white supremacy and imperialism is as something obviously to be struggled against, but also something that can inform Black U.S. women's world citizenship. Bethune really comes to understand in the 1940s that the the national struggle against racism is connected to the international struggle. That's the thing that really changes for her. She knew both of those things before the 1940s, but it's her experiences in in San Francisco at the founding conference of the UN that really make that make the connection between those two things for her and really radicalize her in terms of the way that she then goes back to the National Council of Negro Women and keeps talking about the need for international solidarity among non-white people, among Black people in particular. And so one of the things I think is interesting about Bethune too is that most of the other women had already developed their ideas and theories before they came to work for world government. So Florence Gorton Tuttle, for example, had already really developed her ideas about maternalism, about eugenics, about the need for race preservation, before she applied those ideas to world federation and world citizenship. Whereas you can actually see Bethune at the UN conference in 1945, you can see these ideas developing for her at the time. She really undergoes, her ideas undergo a transformation based on those experiences that you can really, you can track through her time at that conference. Yeah, I'd love to come back and talk a little bit more about her in a minute because she's just such a such an amazing figure for so many reasons. Um, but yeah, let's turn to speaking a little bit more about each of these chapters because like you said, this is a biography. Um and each of these women comes from very different backgrounds, whether from different generations, different races, classes, their education, their immigration status, their professions. And one of the real strengths of the book, I think, is how you trace the ways that these personal circumstances influence their ideas about global citizenship and governance. So I thought we could just dive into a few of the chapters, if that's okay with you. Um, let's start with uh, Florence Skirton Tuttle. She's maybe a trickier figure, I think, especially from today's standpoint, given some of her eugenicist views. Um, she's also one of the women who's engaging directly with the League of Nations, which, as we've talked about, is one of these tangible examples of world government during this era. Um, yeah, could you talk a little about her attitude towards the League and other efforts to legislate global governance at the time? What was motivating her enthusiasm for them? Yeah. She is she's a fascinating character. And luckily for me and for other historians, she wrote and published. She wrote a fair amount. She published some of it. There's some really good unpublished work that's available in her papers at Smith College. But she she wrote down a lot of her thinking particularly about eugenics, about maternalism. For her, um, I was thinking about this before our conversation, her eugenics might best be described as benevolent eugenics, sort of along the same lines as benevolent imperialism, in that it's still eugenics and it's still coming from a place of white supremacy. But she really saw it as a way to improve not specifically the white race, although of course that was implied, but to improve the world and to bring peace. She thought that 
a different kind of motherhood, a spiritual motherhood that was supported by society, that was encouraged and developed, would help bring about peace. So, for example, she was a supporter of birth control because she wanted women to be able to have control over when and how many children they had so that they could be better mothers. And so when it came to the League of Nations, her approach was very gendered. She believed that women should should know about the League of Nations, should be aware of its activities, should try to influence its activities because women had this privilege of motherhood, because they had that gendered perspective that they could bring to international cooperation in the interest of racial flourishing. And of course, in her mind, she meant the human race. And in practice, she really did mean the white race. She really did not talk or think, I don't think, very much about non-white people. Well, speaking of non-white people, let's move on to Mary McLeod Bethune, obviously an incredible civil rights icon. Um, I think just last week, actually, she became the first Black American to be represented in the National Statuary Hall at the U.S. Capitol. Um, And no one is more deserving, right? Just what an incredible person. But I think that her international work is often dwarfed by her reputation as an educator, her advisory role in domestic politics, her civil rights activism. So I'd love to just hear more from you about how she linked those her domestic civil rights work with her more global vision. Um, what was her idea for world government and how did she work towards that? So that what you just said is exactly the reason I wanted to include Bithune in this book, because a lot of people do know who she is. But I, I think that there has not yet been enough attention given to her internationalist ideas. And... I think what really brought those to the surface for her was participation in post-war planning. And that began before 1945. Post-war planning really began uh, began in some circles as early as 1939 and 1940. But it was really in about 1942 that the National Council of Negro Women, along with lots of other politically active women in the United States, decided that they really needed to be a part of whatever was going to come after the war. So they needed to be on the committees. They needed to be part of the study groups. They really needed to be involved in shaping whatever the post-war world was going to be. So, of course, what Bethune and the other women in the NCNW brought to that was racial equality. They wanted to make sure not only that Black people would have a seat at the post-war planning tables, but that the post-war world would take into account long histories of segregation and discrimination and and bring racial equality into the post-war world. And so for her, what really those are really the factors that get her interested in the San Francisco conference. So it's you know, the NAACP gets a few representatives and then she sort of finagles her way onto the delegation and she ends up going with this idea that she is going to try to influence the activity in San Francisco to to help shape the post-war world within the post-war United States. And then it's really when she's at San Francisco and she sees how Black people from around the world are being marginalized. And she sees how delegates from other nations like Haiti and Ethiopia and Liberia are 
are not on stage. They're not part of the scene. And that really drives home for her, these connections between decolonization and Black nationalism around the world and the same struggles that she's fighting in the United States for civil rights and for racial equality. So as I said earlier, it's really in San Francisco in 1945, with the help of women like Islanda Robeson and um, Vijaya Lakshmi Pandit, who's a delegate from India, she really starts to make those connections. Mm -hmm. One of the other women in this book I found fascinating, who I'd never actually come across before, embarrassingly, um, is Esther Kockenbrunauer. And unlike many of the others that you've spoken about already, whose ideas of global citizenship were really rooted in pacifism, Brunauer believed more in this principle of collective security. And that is quite different. So could you talk about how her experiences shaped this more sort of militarist view of world organization? Um, and how did that in- influence her contributions to post-war planning in the 1940s? Yes. Brunauer's perspective was very much shaped by a year that she spent in Germany in 1933. She went to Germany on an American Association of University Women Fellowship. She arrived in February, so less than a month after Hitler was sworn in as chancellor. And she was actually at the Reichstag library the day it burned. She was at the library that morning. She was all set up to do archival research. Historians can relate to this. She left that afternoon to run some errands. She fully intended to come back the next day. And that night it burned. So, of course, not only could she not do the research she had planned, but she was completely swept up in the politics of what was happening in Germany at the time. And so she actually dedicated the rest of that year to studying the Nazi party. She interviewed people up and down the country. She interviewed a lot of Nazi officials. In December, she sat down with Adolf Hitler himself. Unfortunately, she doesn't tell us a whole lot about that interview, but she did have a chance to interview him. And she came back to the United States determined to tell people that Germany was a threat and that the United States had better start recognizing that threat. And of course, very few people took her as seriously as she wanted them to. But that experience was what really shaped her approach to collective security in the 1930s. She felt like she had firsthand knowledge of Nazism and of what was coming, what these people were capable of. And so she translated that into these arguments for collective security. For her, world citizenship was very much about banding together to save the world from Nazism and fascism. Mm -hmm. Well, skipping to the end of the war, I'd love to ask you about a few of these women who were doing this post-war planning once it was all through, Um, and especially Dorothy Kenyon, who, of course, is deeply involved in the early United Nations, um, which comes sort of out of the embers of the League of Nations. What was Dorothy Kenyon's background? And then tying her to Esther Brunard, they both sort of faced similar backlash in the 1950s um, from sort of House on American Activities Committee and such. What what did she then have to deal with um, because of these internationalist views? So Dorothy Kenyon was a lawyer. She was a labor activist. She was a feminist. She was what we would call a social feminist. So she opposed the ERA and she opposed Alice Paul and the National Women's Party. She opposed the ERA until very late in her life in the early 1970s. 
but she favored protective labor legislation for women. And she brought some of that perspective to her work as the U.S. representative on the commission, the U.N. Commission on the Status of Women. She was another one of these women who probably would not have been that out of place in the progressive era in the sense that she felt that as a white U.S. woman, she and her colleagues had experiences that they could bring to help uplift almost non-white women in other parts of the world. And some of that rhetoric did make its way onto her work for the Commission on the Status of Women. And then, of course, when she was targeted by McCarthy and HUAC, all of that internationalist consciousness worked against her because anything internationalist was seen as a, a signal of communist sympathy and... Kenyan, both Kenyan and Brunauer, as you pointed out, were accused by name by McCarthy of harboring communist sympathies in the 1950s, and they both had to go before HUAC. Brunauer was fired from her job. She was at the State Department then. She was fired from her job and never really managed to get her career back on track. Kenyan never served in a public post, a public government post um, after that because of the the, the long shadow that McCarthyism cast on, on all people who were accused of communist sympathies. Well, moving on, I think, to some, back to some more thematic questions. We've covered only about half of the women in this book, I should say. There are so many more interesting ones. And if you have a favorite you want to talk about, also feel free to jump in on that. Um, but I'd love to ask you a little bit more about the process of writing this. Um, I'm really interested in what your source base was like when you're working with nine different people. Were you able to find comparable materials for each of these women? Um, How did you balance sort of some who have maybe voluminous personal writings, some who have maybe just organizational papers between the lesser known, the better known? Um, How did you deal with sort of the the discrepancy and what you were able to use? Yeah, that was a challenge. A lot of these women have their own archival collections, but they range from, I think it's seven boxes of Tuttle's papers at Smith College to 1,600 feet of the Schwimmer Lloyd collection at the New York Public Library. (laughs) So there's definitely a wide range just in terms of individual archival material. Brunauer, I think, is the only one who doesn't have her own archival collection. And I suspect that that's because she died pretty young. And I would guess that either it never occurred to her or she just never had the time to put together her papers and donate them somewhere. But Brunauer, I was lucky in the sense that Brunauer published a fair amount. So she wrote articles, particularly throughout the 1930s and 40s, on her perspective on collective security, on what she called the Nazi menace, on the need for a strong post-war international organization. And then the other place where I found good information on Brunauer was in the records of the American Association of University Women. So a lot of times I did go to the archives of organizations that these women were involved in to find information about them. Bethune was another one where that was really helpful. She has an extensive collection, a couple different collections of papers. But the place where I actually found a lot of information on her international ideas was in the papers of the National Council of Negro Women. So 
Yeah, it it really did vary. And there, you know, as always, I think when you're doing historical research, there were a lot of things that I could never find that I really wanted to know. Things like, well, what do you mean when you say world citizen? Could you tell me? <laughs> but of course, none of them do. And so it's just a matter of piecing together whatever you can find. And what, as you were writing this, what were you thinking the audience would be? Because like I said before, I found this a really engaging book. It's very accessible. Who, who are you writing this for? And who are you hoping will read it? I'm hoping that a lot of different historians and scholars will read it. I hope that scholars in citizenship studies and political theorists who are interested in citizenship will read it because I am, I'm proud of this definition of global citizenship that I sort of cobbled together from lots of different places. And I would love to know how other people who are not historians, but who think a lot about citizenship react to that. I hope that historians and other scholars, especially political scientists and international relations scholars who work on international organization and world government, will read it in part because I want them to know that women also had these ideas, (laughs) that women were also thinking about world government, and they were thinking about what the post-war world should look like, and they were thinking about what their place in that world should be. And a lot of times when I read histories of world government or ideas about world citizenship, there are either no women or very few women in there. So I want to make some of these women part of those conversations. And then, of course, I also hope that women's historians will read it particularly U.S. women's historians, but also women's historians in other fields, because I really, it's important to me to keep contributing to conversations about women's internationalist ideas. Again, this is sort of where I started. How did these women see themselves in relation to the rest of the world? What kinds of world consciousness did they have? And I really, I hope that what I have brought out in this book furthers some of those conversations about U.S. women's internationalism. So I will actually ask you this question in that case. Who is your favorite? Which one was the most fun to write of these nine? <laughs> you know, I've thought about this a lot and other people have asked me. I'm not sure I have a favorite. I, I think they're all really interesting. I really, I enjoyed reading different kinds of sources that they left So, for example, one of the things I love about Rosika Schwimmer is, man, she is a historian's dream in the sense that she wrote everything down. She produced carbon copies of everything she wrote. She made sure that everyone she corresponded with put the date on things. So I really enjoyed learning her self-consciousness about this. She, She knew that she was writing for posterity and she wanted to be writing for posterity, versus somebody like Florence Tuttle, who I think in some ways, particularly this interesting autobiography that she wrote, but that isn't published, it's in her papers at Smith. I got the sense reading that, that she was writing it for her, that this was a way for her to sit and look back on her life before she died. So just the different kinds of writing that I read from these women as I was trying to learn more about them and about their ideas, I was really interested in in the range of the types of sources that I came across. And that was true for all of them. There wasn't really one particular woman who stood out in that regard. That's a very diplomatic answer. Um, I thought in reading this, 
I found I reflected a lot on the comparisons between the time these women were going through and our times today. I think these women were facing global crises that were not unlike some of the ones we find ourselves in. And rather than turn inward, they looked for ways to strengthen global cooperation and really had this conviction that a more peaceful world was possible. What was it like for you writing about these women, especially over these last several years, which have been full of many crises? And what are the lessons that you take from their lives? I had this feeling when I was writing my first book, too, which is when you're writing about women and peace activism, to some extent, you're always going to be writing about failure. And so I did do a lot of thinking about, okay, I don't want to just end there. I don't want to just say, well, it didn't work. We don't have a world government. That never happened. What do we learn from their failures? What can we draw from them? And one of the things I really think we can draw is their optimism. They really believed that their work would have an impact. They believed that a world government would improve the world, would actually help bring about peace. They believed that if they took seriously their roles as world citizens, that they could make a difference. And I know for me, a lot of times looking at the world now, it's hard to hang on to that optimism. And so that's one thing that I hope I can take away from the experience of writing this book. And I hope others who read it can take away too, that that belief in their own, in the, in the potential for their own impact that belief that they really could make some kind of difference. Well, that is a really beautiful sentiment to end on. So I think we'll just wrap up here. Um, Megan, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Um, And again, I'm Rebecca Turkington. You've been listening to New Books in Women's History, a channel of the New Books Network. And we've discussed Megan Threckold's new Citizens of the World, U.S. Women and Global Government, a 2022 release from the University of Pennsylvania Press. Thank you.